Uh, hey everyone, uh, this is Olga from uh, Core Spirit, and um, uh, I'm here today with Dana Sturtevant. Uh, Dana, hello, uh, and uh, thank you for joining us. And um, uh, Dana is a, a registered dietitian, a nutrition uh, therapist, co-creator of Body Trust, and co-founder of Be Nourished. Uh, Dana, uh, tell us about uh, the concept of body trust. Uh, what does it look like in practice? Yeah, we, um, we developed our body trust approach. Uh, my business partner is a therapist and we developed our body trust approach uh, to help people heal um, from the effects of living in a weight biased world, in a dieting culture. Um, and many of our clients were coming to us with really um, disconnected relationships with food and their bodies. And so Body Trust is a weight inclusive model of care that we developed, meaning that um, we decenter weight. We don't focus on weight. We don't promise weight loss. We believe that when we promise, make promises to people about their size and shape, that we just are colluding with diet culture and we are offering nothing different than Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig or any other program, dieting program out there. Um, Body Trust is an internally directed process. It's really about getting out from underneath all of the so-called experts that over oftentimes the span of a lifetime um, have really disrupted our ability to live in our bodies and listen to them. And so we're getting back to this internally directed process of um, being connected to our hunger and our fullness and our desire, um, what we like, what we don't like, connecting back to our truth. And at the end of the day, body trust uh, is, um, means trusting your body to sort out the weight. It's acknowledging that um, bodies come in a variety of shapes and sizes. They have since the beginning of time. And the more our society has tried to eradicate certain size bodies, the more disrupted our embodiment is. And, um, and people end up in these really disconnected relationships with food in themselves. And so at the end of the day, it's list, body trust is listening to the body, acting accordingly, and trusting the body to sort out the weight. <laughs> and uh, why do you think people are so obsessed with controlling their weight, size, and shape? Um, we live in, it's actually, we're recording this during Weight Stigma Awareness Week. Um, you know, we live in a world that pathologizes bodies, that um, likes to say that some bodies are better than others, some bodies are more desirable than others. And many of us get indoctrinated into this really mechanistic way of thinking about the body before we are old enough to really understand what we're doing and give informed consent about the harm that may occur. Um, I think at the end of the day, people are hustling for worthiness under the guise of thinness and health. 
Mm -hmm. I think what they're trying to do is to get out from underneath a lifetime of shame and self-blame in the pursuit of thin, the thin ideal. You know, Virgie Tovar says, when people say they want to lose weight, what they really mean is, I want to be respected. I want to feel valued. I want to be loved. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. And so we seek out those things um, through dieting and weight manipulation and body control. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what is the main difference between a body trust approach and a healthy lifestyle, di uh, healthy diet in a um, traditional weight uh, paradigm? Um, I think, you know, we, we, some body trust is some, we call it a weight inclusive model of care. Um, and the traditional weight paradigm is what we would call the weight normative approach. And, and in one of the questions you submitted, you acknowledge that, you know, 87% of people who lose weight on a diet will regain it right that this that um that the traditional weight paradigm um is a failed paradigm that it doesn't work that it doesn't work for the majority of people who engage with it and for those who do lose weight and keep it off they they often uh it often looks a lot like an eating disorder and um Health is a word that gets thrown a lot out. Health is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and yet you can put a hundred doctors in a room and ask them to define health and nobody could come up with a standard definition. And it's the same that goes with healthy diets that, you know, what one person believes is healthy, another person believes is problematic. Um, I used to work back in the 1990s, early in my career as a dietitian, um, or in my, I was actually not a dietitian, I was uh, in school studying nutrition and I got a um, job at the, uh, a health food store, it kind of dates me, they don't call them health food stores anymore. Um, but what I noticed is that people came in with all kinds of food philosophies. We had people who ate raw diets and only ate raw foods. And then you had people on macrobiotic diets and they thought eating raw food was really harmful. You had people, I had people asking me to put the entire carrot, including the greens, into their juice. And I had people telling me to cut the, the carrot an inch from the top because the tops were poison. You have paleo people telling the vegan people that they're wrong. You have the vegans telling the pa paleo people they're wrong. You have people who are paleo vegan, which I don't even know what you eat when you're paleo vegan. So this word, the healthy diet, um, I don't know that we really know what that means. I think it's really personal. And um, I don't think there's really consensus around it. So body trust is really helping people heal from the side effects of chronic dieting and disordered eating and living in a culture steeped in healthism and fat phobia. 
And we trust people to figure out what healthy eating looks like for them if that's something that's important to them. Thank you. And uh, you, uh, you said uh, diet in mind. Uh, what, what does it mean and how to get rid of it? Yeah, so, you know, I, I wrote a blog years ago about my path to health at every size and how I became a dietitian um, advocating for a really different model of care. And um, when I worked in research, I worked in the traditional weight paradigm. I, I was a, on, a, in a group of people who really believed we were promoting healthy lifestyles. We didn't believe we were promoting dieting behaviors. We really, we knew dieting didn't work. We were aware of the data and we really thought we were promoting healthy lifestyles. But the weight, um, the, the data from the center was no different than any other weight loss study that, you know, at six months, the intervention worked in air quotes in that people's weight was down, but at two years, their weight was back up and then some, and this is what we see is the regain is often, people often gain more weight than they lose. And over time, they become heavier. Over time, their, their metabolism is greatly impacted. And I was starting to become disillusioned with this because I was starting to feel like the intervention was the problem, even though the investigators thought it worked in the short term. I didn't think we should be focusing on weight. I thought, you know, we can trust people's bodies to sort out the weight. We can focus on health and help people have healthy relationships with themselves. I was seeing the impact of stress um, in people's emotional lives on their relationship with food and their bodies. And so in, as I got more disillusioned and felt unethical in my work, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating, and it's in that book that they talk about the qualities of a dieting mind. And they actually have a chart that shows what a dieting mind looks like and what a non-dieting mind looks like. And when I saw the qualities of a dieting mind, I realized that the, the participants in the weight loss research were dieting, that we were calling it healthy lifestyles. But when you looked at the qualities of a dieting mind, they were definitely dieting and we were just calling it healthy lifestyle. It's hard to live in a society, the society we live in today and not have a dieting mind where we think about food as good or bad. We judge um, our a day of eating as good or bad. We find ways to make up for it. We see exercise um, as a, as a way of making up for things, as a compensatory practice. We judge our success based on how many pounds we've lost and, and um, what people think about us and our weight. And so when I work with clients, when they first come to see me, um, they believe they gave up dieting years ago. And yet when we look at the qualities of a dieting mind, they're like, I've been dieting this whole time. So it's the, really this way of mechanistic way of thinking about the body and food and calories and that, that is unsustainable. Um, and you, uh, you say qualities of a diet in mind. Uh, what, what do you mean on the, the qualities? Uh, yeah, we, um, 
we eat, we make decisions based on what we eat. Let me back up. We make decisions about when, what, and how much to eat based on the desire to lose weight mm. with the sole purpose of, of weight loss in mind. We, the, you know, a, a dieting mind um, thinks I was good or, oh, I was so bad. I shouldn't be eating this. Um, oh, I, you know, I, I had, I ran three miles today so I can have this brownie. That's what the dieting mind sounds like. There's qualities to it um, that are rooted in rigidity and perfectionism. And it's really unsus an unsustainable way of occupying a body. And um, why do our bodies respond negatively to food restriction and uh, um, dietary restraints? We are biologically wired to eat, to survive. And when we don't get enough to eat, our bodies kick in complex regulatory mechanisms to fight against that. We become preoccupied with food. Um, our metabolism slows down to survive. Um, you know, there's a something I would encourage listeners to look up is the Minnesota Starvation Study, which was done by Ansel Keys. And it was done with conscientious objectors of the war. And these, these men uh, were college age and they, were, they volunteered to be starved basically so they didn't have to go to war. And, and the researchers were interested in what happens to people when they were interested in what would happen to soldiers fighting wars when they didn't have access to food and how they're functioning, how they would function in, in wars. And so these college age men were put on calorie restricted diets for a very short period of time. And the, in, the researchers observed them. And these were college age men reporting, this was in the 1940s, they were reporting um, being, you know, having more thoughts about food. They were um, spending unusually large periods of time in grocery stores, you know, and men in the 1940s didn't really go to the grocery stores. That's what women did. They collected recipes. These were men in the 1940s were collecting recipes. If they had, if this was happening in 2019, they'd be watching the Food Network like it was pornography. And it's not uncommon for people who have weight loss surgery to watch the Food Network and watch all these cooking shows like it's pornography. They're biologically hungry, even though they physically don't feel that hunger. Um, so we get preoccupied with food. The, um, these men um, started to develop bizarre eating habits where they would either stall and push their food around the plate often like we see in people with anorexia, where they will have these eating rituals that really slow down and methodically, you know, like somebody might like eat an M&M in four bites, like one M&M in four bites, right? This is 
this is a not a usual way somebody would eat m m so they 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 either stalled eating or they would inhale their food they would gulp their food they would choke on their food because they were so hungry so they saw that these college-age men lost um, interest in sex so and when food became um liberalized and they were allowed to eat what they wanted and however much they wanted it took these men Many of these men over a year to normalize their eating patterns because of one short period of time of food deprivation and dietary restriction. So it has powerful impacts on, um, our bodies really respond negatively to food restriction and dietary restraint. Wow. <laughs> and. Um uh you say that you help people to set up good uh relationships with uh food and with their bodies uh, what what should be my uh, first step uh to set up uh, good relationships with food and with my body yeah um I think, you know, one of the, we talk about a couple things when people really um, come into our work. We, um, one is to understand how we lose trust with our bodies, right? How, how has this gotten disrupted? What, you know, often we talk, we start with, at what age did you first come to learn that your, pro, your body was a problem? understanding the roots of that who most of our clients they were um 10 years old it happens between the ages of eight to ten it's always by an adult in their life and um and it was often where they started the the lifelong body project and so understanding that we're not born into this world fretting about our bellies butts and thighs that we are socialized to believe certain things about some bodies, right? And we are socialized um, to feel shame and unworthiness. Um, and so starting to really see how we've been socialized to participate and engage in something that's so harmful is part of healing. Another thing, um, that is necessary to heal relationship with food and body is to put thoughts about weight on the back burner. We cannot heal our relationship with food and our bodies while focusing on changing the size and shape of our bodies. This is not something we've seen that's possible in our 20 years of clinical experience working with people with disordered eating, that we must decenter weight and start to call out diet culture. And so um, you know, the metaphor of keeping thoughts about weight on the back burner acknowledges that we live in a culture that's going to make, um, that's going to trigger those thoughts, that we're going to drive by a billboard with fat phobic messages, and it's going to reinforce this belief that there's something wrong with our bodies and we want to die, we want to start dieting, right? So, um, so when, when those thoughts about weight pop up, we just kind of put them back on the back burner. We're not paying attention to them. We might acknowledge that they're there, but we're focusing on healing. 
And one of the ways we decenter weight and call out diet culture is to become aware of and reduce body checking behaviors. So human beings, and particularly those of us socialized female, spend a lot of time monitoring our bodies. We sit down and we look at, we look for a thigh gap. We feel for rolls. We feel for bones. We step on a scale to check our bodies. We walk into a room and compare our bodies to other people. These are what we call body checking behaviors or habitual body monitoring. And most people are aware that they do it. Many are not aware of how pervasive body checking is in their life. And so we, we work to increase awareness of body checking behaviors and reduce the frequency and severity of them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, when I was a child, I, I was uh, a chubby uh, child. I learned to be uh, ashamed of my body. Now I like what I see in the mirror, but uh, sometimes I have this uh, old feeling. Um, what should I do to, to heal it? Um, I think um, recognizing the lies that we've been sold um, is a big part of this, that uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes kind of gives this metaphor of like that when we're children, we're, we don't look at bodies the way we, we look at them as ad adults, like we learn what, what, we, what to value and what to pathologize. And she says, we're like given a pair of glasses through which to view the world in. And these glasses are broken and that we can take the glasses off, right? And so it's really recognizing that we live in a world of body hier hierarchies that we've been a sold a bill of goods that is not true um, and to really ask ourselves who benefits from these beliefs we have about ourselves who put that ceiling on love who benefits when we just when we think we're not enough you know this is the diet industry is a 70 billion dollar industry that has no data to support it and they depend on people blaming themselves and coming back for more and so the more we can really learn about how we are socialized into this world of what sonia renee taylor calls body terrorism right and some of this though even the way i'm talking about this really comes from sonia renee taylor's work and her book the body is not an apology um, uh, if, if you really struggle with body shame, um, her work and the way she talks about body hierarchies and those ceilings on love that are prescribed for us is really powerful. Thank you. And uh, when I talk to uh, Gabriel uh, Cousins, um, uh, who, who, who is an expert in curing diabetes, I asked him, uh, what should one do to cure diabetes? And uh, he said, it's simple, uh, just uh, change your lifestyle and uh, love yourself. 
and uh, this uh, got me thinking uh, what does it mean just love yourself what what do you think what is a self-love in in your point of view um You know, I, I really struggle with this concept that if we, um, we change our lifestyle and love ourselves, that it, everything else is going to go away, uh, given the, the worlds we live in and how people experience oppression every day. And some of the experts I know on diabetes call, um, instead of calling it metabolic syndrome, they call it oppression syndrome. And when we really look at um, lifestyle, and, and I, I really want to acknowledge the social determinants of health, that, um, you know, there's research to show that lifestyle factors and health behaviors account for as little as 5 to 20% of social differences in health outcomes. And so I really struggle with this idea that if we just love ourselves and change our lifestyles, we will be healthier when people are dealing with racism and transphobia and Islamophobia and all kinds of systemic injustices. Um, and I think about, um, you know, Sonia Renee Taylor has uh, talks about radical self-love. Let me grab this. Sorry, I meant to have this with me. Um, you know, she says, as humans, we are in need of a radical love to, to, to transform how our world deals with bodies. And so, our work must be radical if we are to combat, combat the consistent inundation of toxic media messages, laws, regulations, seeping body shame and body-based oppression into every aspect of our, of our society. So to me, radical self-love is um, loving ourselves despite the the systemic injustices that we face, not believing what we've been told about ourselves and what about bodies, and to really show up um, with in with ourselves in a way that's compassionate and loving. It's really hard to take care of something you don't like, and most of us are trying to hate ourselves into a version of ourselves that we love. And so we, um, it's a big, you know, some Cheryl Strayed says it's a tiny, gigantic revolution from which we, we move from loathing to loving our own skin. Um, but, you know, that it's a, you know, it's, there's a lot of distance between loathing and loving. And so we just kind of move towards it a fraction of an inch at a time. I don't know how well I did answering your question. Think feelings or thoughts can change our bodies. And in what way? Do I think feelings and thoughts can change our bodies?
I think it's complicated. <laughs> I think uh, I, I, one thing I, 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 I have a hard time uh, saying is that, you know, that everybody who loves themselves and thinks differently about themselves and their bodies will um, have their bodies change in a way that society says is favorable. Um, I think when we enter self-care through a place of love, what's possible is really different. The type of self-care that we engage in is really different because it's not coming from a place of shame. It's coming from a place of really caring deeply about ourselves and our well-being. And a side effect of that may be that our bodies change and our health improves. Um, and I'm really careful about making any promises uh, as a blanket statement around this. I think, um, you know, this belief that health is something we should all be pursuing. I'm not saying this is your belief, but we live in a, in a society that's got a lot of what we call healthism, which is the belief that our health is our be all and end all to our existence. And I, you know, I think at the end of the day, what we're talking about is how human beings do not like being vulnerable. We want to have answers. We want to have solutions and, um, and we want to believe that we can control bad things from happening to us. And, you know, there's some other questions in here about living eternally and staying young forever. And my first th th reaction is why would we want to do that? Why would like, I don't, why are we so afraid of death? Why do we have to stay young? Who says we have to stay young? What is that rooted? What is that belief rooted in? I think what we're looking for is a feeling that we want to feel free, that we want to feel alive, um, vibrant, which makes me think of some of the stuff Esther Perel is talking about in her work on eroticism and ways of knowing. And so much of this conversation about health and, and, and weight is really steeped in, in the fact that we human beings don't like being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And we believe if we just find the right way to live our lives, that none of these bad things will happen to us. But life is messy, it's complicated, bodies are leaky and messy and unruly. And um, I believe we have some you know, that what we do and think and feel has some impact on what happens to us, but I don't, I don't believe that it has as great of an impact as we, we think it does. And I think at the end of the day, it's because human beings don't like not knowing. We don't like feeling vulnerable. We don't want to lean into our vulnerability and acknowledge that we're here for a very short period of time and that we can make a huge difference in the world. And so much of we do uh, when we're um, engaging in the pursuit of health is really in about us um, not wanting to look at our vulnerability.
and the uncertainty of it all. So that might not be a super popular <laughs> or well-liked opinion by your listeners. And yet it feels important to say. Uh, thank you. And you, uh, you tell a lot about shame and its connection with um, food disorder. And in what way uh, do shame and guilt transform young people's body when uh, they grow up? Yes. Um, shame and guilt really um, creates a lifetime of hustling, of hypervigilance, of, um, you know, we adopt um, the body project. Um, uh, we um, enter into cycles of disordered eating and body shame to, to really mitigate um, the impacts of stigma and shame. And so, you know, I think kids start to look for what they need outside of themselves. And we start to look for things um, in places where we can't find them. And so the question was, in what ways do guilt and shame transform young people's bodies when they grow up? Um, It really, I think, has us in this adversarial relationship with our bodies where we end up doing things, um, instead of doing things for and with our bodies, we're doing things to and on our bodies. Where there's almost a level of self-harm in it. That the motivation to change is rooted in um, not in worthiness, but in mitigating shame and stigma. And how does that show up in our bodies? I think, you know, we know that for many kids who are put on diets at a young age, they end up with a lifetime of disordered eating and eating disorders and often gain weight over time. Um, weight stigma is, is associated with weight gain and poor health outcome. And yet the solutions often offered by schools and pediatricians are stuff and stuff are really rooted in that traditional weight paradigm that just upholds shame and stigma and self-blame. So teaching kids to celebrate body diversity, to recognize that um, we have short and tall kids and we have fat and thin kids, and that's part of our body diverse world. And that we, 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 respect and honor and accept all the bodies that show up in the room. Thank you. And if you had an opportunity to send a message to humankind, what would you say? I would say that all oppression is connected that the traditional weight paradigm is a failed paradigm 
that we've been duped into thinking certain things about bodies and there's a multi-billion dollar industry that benefits from us continuing to blame ourselves and hustle, continue to hustle. Um, I would say that the struggle is not your fault and that there, there is a way out, um, but it won't be found in another diet or health program that makes promises about what will happen to the size and shape of your body and the health of your body um, if you pursue thinness. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dana, for, for your time and for interview. It was really exciting. Thank you and you're welcome. It was nice to be here with you today and I hope that people watching this um, walk away with some new ideas and um, I really give you permission to take or leave what I said. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was really exciting and new ideas. It is uh, something about core spirits. So we are open for new ideas and uh, we share new ideas. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.